was sitting around a table with her friends and Jeff. And Jeff was the only believer around the table. And Cheryl was ready to take her shot at him and his beliefs. And so she began telling the table a story. She said, uh, a couple years ago, I was shopping in my hometown of Brisbane, Australia, and I was sitting down for a while, taking a break, and a lot of people walking by, and I saw an older lady walking by with a purse, and I saw a young man come and attempt to snatch the purse from her, except he kind of got tangled up. He was obviously not a professional purse snatcher yet, and he got, kind of got tangled up and ended up pushing her down before he got hold of the purse and ran off, and she said, and the whole time... I saw what was happening and I saw it was wrong, but I could not even move. And I just sat there and watched it all happen like everybody else did. And the table was horrified. You know, ooh, how could you do that? And she let those words sink in just a little bit. And then she said, if you think that's bad, then how could you, Jeff, believe in a God? 2004 a tsunami hit Southeast Asia, and 250,000 people die. Where was your God then? Why did he just sit back and watch? How could he do that? And the anger that was coming from her, you could tell, was probably not just an anger about a tsunami, but probably something very personal in her own life, a loss, a suffering, and she was taking out her anger on God. Some of you have felt that anger. Some of you sit here today and you're struggling. There's a hitch. There's a hiccup or maybe a huge barrier between you and God because of the anger you are directing towards him. And maybe it's a loved one, a friend, a neighbor, and you try to speak to them about the love of God, but all they spew back is how disappointed they are in God. And there's this barrier because of that. Well, you might be surprised that one of the great prophets of the Bible felt exactly that. Anger at God, and he even expressed it to God. So we find ourselves in a very interesting passage today. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Jeremiah 20. And uh, it's really good to be back with you. appreciate Dave preaching the last two weeks. I was gone to a, a conference one week, and then uh, our family got to go see extended family out in Oregon, um, which was great. We had not been there in a long time to see them, so that was fantastic. And uh, been kind of reading along in Jeremiah with you. And I, I'm excited to get to preach from Jeremiah 20 today just about this theme of what do you do when you're mad at God? When you have this deep-seated anger towards God. And we're just going to read from Jeremiah 20 together uh, because we're going to see what Jeremiah did and see how he felt. And that's going to help us here. So Jeremiah 20, verse 1. When the priest Pasher, son of Imer, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in the stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. The, the next day, when Pasher released him from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord's name for you is not Pasher, but terror on every side. For this is what the Lord says, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. 
With your own eyes you will see them fall by the sword of their enemies. I will give all Judah into the hands of the king of Babylon, who will carry them away to Babylon or put them to the sword. I will deliver all the wealth of this city into the hands of their enemies. All its produce, all of its valuables, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah, they will take it away as plunder and carry it off to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who live in your house will go into exile in Babylon. There you will die and be buried, and, and all your friends to whom you have prophesied lies. My Bible uh, gives a headline for the, the next few verses. It says, Jeremiah's complaint, because then he turns to the Lord. You deceived me, Lord. And I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I will not mention his name or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. We'll come back to that verse some in the weeks to come. I hear many whispering, terror on every side. Denounce him. Let's denounce him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying, perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior, so my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord. Give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought me, my father, the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning, a battle cry at noon, for he did not kill me in the womb, with my mother as my grave, her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to the end and to end my days in shame? Pasher, the guy who persecutes Jeremiah here and even locks him up, was a rival. It dates all the way back to kind of a priestly rivalry, so a professional rivalry of sorts. And he locks him up, and maybe that's not all that surprising, but what takes our breath away is Jeremiah's lashing out towards God. He says things like, you deceived me, Lord. You did not meet my expectations. Everyone mocks me all day long. Violence, destruction, oppression is upon me. I blame the word of the Lord. I'm so mad at everyone. No, just sidestep. When you're angry at God, you're angry at a whole lot of other people usually at the same time. Those two things just go together. Jeremiah also saying, I'd be better off dead. Anger at God, regret in life, despair. I mean, those are some pretty harsh things to say when we read them. You're like, you're not supposed to say that in the Bible, are you? There's nothing easy I can say about your anger with God or your friend's anger with God or your son or daughter or 
mom or dad or brother or sister. I know you know some people who are angry at God, and there's nothing easy or trivial I can say about that. With that in mind, there's four principles I just want to walk us through this morning. I think we see them in Jeremiah. We certainly see them in the book of Job. We see them all the way in the Old Testament when Joseph was suffering. Uh, We see them throughout the New Testament when Jesus suffers, when the disciples suffered. We see it in books like 1 Peter. All throughout the Bible, there's this theme of suffering. And there's four principles I just want to call our attention to this morning that might be helpful as we try to overcome our anger with God or maybe help someone else overcome their anger with God. And the first is this, if you like to take notes. There's a mysteriousness about suffering and evil we can't fully understand. There's a mysteriousness about suffering and evil we can't fully understand. Just um, last week, we were in Portland, and we took the MAX light rail system, transit system, from the airport to downtown Portland. And it's rated as one of the safest and most efficient light rail systems in the country. I had read lots of reviews, and the reason I read those reviews is you know what happened there back in May. Two girls got on one of those max rail trains to go home. Another man got on. The two girls, one was African-American, one was dressed in Muslim uh, clothes. And the man began to insult both of them and just kind of irrational, uh, blaming them for all the problems of the world. Two girls are frightened, just teenagers. And they try to move away from the man. And when he gets up to begin to follow them, three other passengers stood between him and the girls. And by the time it was all over, two of those protectors were dead. One was injured. The girls were able to flee away. Shrabi and Levi didn't mention this story before we rode the train last week. (laughs) Now you know why. It really is one of the safest. It was a kind of a crazy situation that happened, and you're safer riding the train than driving the car and all of that stuff. It was a terrible tragedy that happened. And the good part of that story was that somebody stood in the way to protect the girls. The tragedy is, where was God? Why did he not step in too? Because he's bigger than those three guys who stood in his path. Where was he? I got to tell you, There's some mystery about evil and suffering that we just can't understand. So the argument from the skeptic, from the cynic, goes like this. If God is good, he would never allow evil and suffering. So he's either not good enough or he's not powerful enough to stop the suffering that we see. Either he's not good enough to to protect those two girls and those men in in that subway train Or he just doesn't care enough about them. Or he's not powerful enough to even stop them. But a counter-argument emerges. One says, see, there can't be a God. But another says, "Are are you sure? Are you absolutely sure that your little tiny human mind has explored every possibility for why God did not step in in that moment? Because the only way that you can make the statement, there's no way, there's no reason for God not to step in, is if you actually have the mind of God to know why he did not. You can't have it both ways. And so one person then comes back and says, 
yeah, but what about the wrongdoings? They're so unfair. And yet another, another voice comes in and says, who gets to describe and define what is fair? In fact, why do we even think that anything would be fair? If we're all just blobs here by accident, everything's fair game. There's nothing fair or unfair unless we have a standard for what is right and wrong. You see, we begin to falsely assume if we can't see the reason for evil or suffering, no reason exists. I read a story of a man who was arrogant and spiteful and greedy and completely doing everything on his own. And he ended up in a terrible fight one time and ended up getting shot in the face, but he lived. He lost his eyesight, though. And as uh, he'd gotten out of the hospital and was trying to figure out how to do life as a blind man, his spiritual eyes for the first time in his life were opened. And he began to understand how poorly he had been living and how gracious God had been to him all along. And he actually came to the point of saying, you know, I don't wish my blindness upon me, but if that's the only way God could ever get my attention, I'm so thankful that he did. Because because physical blindness is way worse than spiritual blindness. And we're reminded that sometimes God has something in mind for us that we could never see on our own. Joseph, all the way back in the Old Testament, we read about him in the book of Genesis. Remember his brothers sold him uh, and they hated him because he was dad's favorite and they sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt and he has all of these bad years, but then good years and then he gets thrown in prison and all of these crazy things happen. And finally, at the end of the story, he's reunited with his brothers and he shows grace and compassion to them and he's reunited with his father. His brothers are still afraid that he's going to get revenge and kill them. And Joseph says this remarkable thing. He says, what they intended for harm, God intended for good. That sometimes evil people can do evil things, and yet God can somehow still make something wonderful come from that. Even good come from that. When you have grown the most in your life, I'm willing to bet is when you suffered in some way. I bet you if we just stopped here today and said, tell me the times in your life where you grew the most in your spiritual walk with the Lord. I bet you if we went around, I don't know what it would be, 80, 90% of you would list some type of suffering in your life. You would say, this is when I most grew close to the Lord. This is when God taught me the most. And maybe it was intense suffering or maybe it was just discomfort enough to get you out of your normal place. But we would go around and we would hear that story told over and over and over Again, you know, it was this kind of line of thinking that transitioned C.S. Lewis from being a skeptic and saying, I can't believe in God because there's too many injustices in the world, to end up him saying, the only way there can be any justice in the world is if there's a just God who defines justice in the first place. And he went from skeptic to one of the greatest theologians the world has ever known. Was that intellectual click for him? When we suffer, we don't know all of the reasons. And if you have a friend who's suffering, don't try to name the reasons for them. That won't be very helpful. I mean, we could, if, they, if they really press you, you could say, Man, there's lots of possibilities. You know, it could be, be careful here, but it could be your own fault. 
We suffer a lot because we do stupid things to ourselves, right? Let's admit that. It could be someone else's fault. Yeah, you're suffering because someone else harmed you. It could be we live in a fallen and broken world, and bad stuff just happens. It could be even the natural laws, like gravity can really work against you sometimes, like when you're on a ladder, right? It's just the natural laws. And it's interesting that the Bible, as much as it talks about suffering, doesn't try to jump into answering that why question. You know, the greatest book on suffering in the Bible is the book of Job. And Job and his friends are debating, why is all this bad stuff happening to me? And I've lost all, everything that I've had. I'm sitting here suffering, and they're trying to answer the why question. And you know what God never does in the book of Job? He never says, here's why, because of this. Never says it. You can read the whole book, frontwards and backwards, and you can't find it. God never says, here's exactly why you have suffered. What does that tell you? That God has chosen, for some reason, to often not tell us why we suffer. To often not tell us why things happen or don't happen. And so the plan of God, we have to recognize, includes both the goodness of God and the offensiveness of evil all at the same time. So there's a mysteriousness to evil and suffering that I beg you to try to accept because until you do, you'll be hitting your head against a brick wall an awful lot in life. And I think faith can help bring us to a place where we can keep searching and trying to understand, but we can still live without knowing why. There's a second principle I want to teach you, and it's this, and it's the surprising one of the day. God allows us to lament and to protest and to be angry. He lets Jeremiah get away with it. I mean, Jeremiah protests and we're like, don't say that to God. God doesn't strike him down. He lets him do it. I was talking to a friend this week who did not have a good experience growing up with his father. He said his father did many uh, unwise things as a father and treated them unfairly. He said, my dad only did one really good thing and he always let me speak my mind. And so... I could go to my dad and say, I don't feel right about this, and I don't like how you treated my brother with this, and I don't like this and this, and there was no repercussions. He was allowed to voice his displeasure. Unfortunately, his dad never changed, and he kept doing some of the foolish things, but he could at least voice this. And we have a loving father who lets us lament and say things to him when we're hurt and when we're wounded, and when we're frustrated. God isn't so sensitive and thin-skinned that he can't handle it. When we say, God, I'm angry because... God says, okay, I'm listening. I'm listening to you. And so he doesn't scold Jeremiah. The next book of the Bible over is Lamentations, and it begins not with the word why, but with the word how. And it's very poetic, and it's very organized. It begins with the first Hebrew alphabet, and the next line, the next, and so on. It's kind of a very organized, poetic book. But as we read, if you were to read through Lamentations and really kind of study the structure of what is a lament, a biblical lament, it's not just someone crying and wailing. It actually includes several things, and here's the things that it usually includes. It includes someone stating the problem. Hey, God, there's a problem. And then... Uh, expressing the complaint with emotion or anger. That's what Jeremiah does. But then expressing a trust in God. The truth is, why would you even complain to God unless you trusted that he was listening to you? And then there's a plea for help. God, help me. And then a commitment to praise. 
A lament includes all of these things. And we see this in Jeremiah. And when I first read Jeremiah 20, I think, man, this guy is a little unbalanced because he's kind of all over the place. He's lamenting. He's including all of these things. And so God allows us to lament and protest and be angry. But here's principle number three. It's a short one. For a while. For a while. Not for the rest of our lives. Not forever. You know, a child ought to have the right to go to mom and dad sometimes and say, I would like to kind of raise this issue. I would like to talk to you about this. But the child ought not persist with that for too long, right? A a loving mom and dad will listen for a little bit, but at some point say, okay, you've said enough now. Now we need to move on. And you might shake your fist at God and say, why are you not doing more? And if you listen... Instead of just screaming, you might hear God say back, why are you not doing more? Because here I'm sitting, and I see the earth, and I see lots of people without food, and I see lots of people with way too much food. What's the problem? The problem is that maybe not everyone here is doing enough to alleviate suffering. So before you shake your fist at me, have you thought about yourself just a little bit? Lately, hmm. See, we can protest and lament. We can go there, but we can't stay there. That's the thing with our anger with God. It's okay to be angry and to say, God, I don't like this, but we have to be willing to eventually say, okay, I've said this, and he's listened, and I trust him. Because to keep speaking it over and over and over and over assumes that you don't think he's really listening to you or you assume that you don't think he really cares. Both of those are dangerous places to be. Ever had a friend whom you offended and they came to you and they said, you offended me. And and they told you why and you talked about it. And when you leave, you're thankful that they came to you. You really are. Like, I'm glad that we got this out of the way and now we can work through this. But what if they kept coming back to you every single day about that same offense a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, a decade ago, back when you were six? I mean, if they just go over and over, you'd be like, you know what? I think I'm done. Relationships just don't work when we stay angry with someone forever. I don't know why you think a relationship with God would work. If you stay angry at him over and over and over and over and over without ever stepping back and just listening. I I think when we do that, what's happened is arrogance and or ignorance has slipped in. And we've begun to think, I'm the one who knows what is right. I know it. I can do it. And when we read through the book of Job, God listens for a very long time. But finally, after Job has expressed his lament, his anger, and his friends have all spoken and tried to come up with their reason why and all of this, God finally says, who made the stars? Who knows how the animal kingdom works? Who knows how plant life functions? Who made all of this and created all of this and understands all of this perfectly? And it's a rhetorical question. And the answer is, not you. So maybe you better pipe down a little bit. 
That's what God finally steps in and says. And I think there's a time when God listens and he listens and he can handle us being angry. But there's a time that we need to kind of step back and realize, but you're still God. I, I understand that you are still God and I am not trying to replace you. Because if I stay angry any longer, it's saying that I think I should replace you. That I understand justice more than you. That I understand fairness more than you. And so at some point, we can become angry and we can go to God with our anger, but we can't stay there forever. And so I want to say to you, if you've come today in anger, that may be fine. You may need to have a time of telling God why you're angry. But don't plan on staying there. Don't, stand, don't plan on staying there. Find some Christians to help love you and to care for you and express that anger to them. But make a path so you don't stay angry with God. He can handle your anger. But he doesn't want you to stay there. Not because he can't handle it, but because you can't. You can't be healthy in your life. What will become of you if you stay angry with God? Really? Where does that look? What does that look like down the line? What does that look like for your friends if you stay angry at God? What does that look like for your witness? What does that look like for your kids? What does that look like for your parenting or grandparenting or being an aunt or an uncle or a good neighbor if you're always angry at God? I'm just telling you, it doesn't look very good, right? The fourth thing is the one I hope you most remember. The love of God can overcome your anger. That is good, good news. The next three weeks, the sermons all kind of hold hands. We're talking about anger today. Next week, we're talking about grief. And the week after that, we're talking about the chaos just kind of all around us. And if I could boil down those three sermons into three sayings, it would be this. God's love can overcome your anger. God's joy can overcome your grief. And God's peace can overcome your chaos. God's love can overcome your anger. God is love. And we see evil, but how do we know it's even evil? Because we've come to know God is love. And he is good. And there is a standard for love. You know, it's really hard to stay angry at someone who's forgiven you. You know, when someone just keeps loving you and forgiving you for all of the nasty things you've done, and the messy things you've done, and they just keep forgetting. It's hard to stay angry at them for too long. And here we look at Jesus. Peter says in Acts 2 when he's preaching, you killed him. You killed the Son of God. You killed the Messiah. And it says the people were cut to the heart. They may have come angry, but they were cut to the heart saying, well, what do we need to do to be saved? It's our fault. We see that. And Peter says, you don't have to do a marathon and run around the world. You don't have to do a gazillion push-ups. You don't have to volunteer at the food pantry 24-7 for the next three years to pay for it. He says, repent and be baptized. And you will be forgiven and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That you commit your life to Christ. You don't have to, you don't have to receive the lashes. You don't have to take on the beating to be forgiven. And God's love, when we begin to see his love, it's just hard to stay angry at him for too long. It's hard to stay angry when someone keeps forgiving you. 
And let's be honest, you need forgiven. I need forgiven. And it's even more difficult to stay angry at someone who has forgiven you through the means of suffering. And that's what Jesus did for us. You know, when Jesus died, he, he, he's not portrayed as some, you know, heroic, stone-faced, bring-it-on kind of guy. Not like, I can take this, whatever it is. No. The Gospels portray Jesus as someone who is broken down, who's weeping, who experiences maybe even physical shock, emotional dismay. We see someone who is deeply suffering. And why was he suffering? For you and for me. We can be mad that God did not intervene with those guys on the MAX train in Portland. But we can at least take heart that three guys were willing to stand in front of the, the, the guy who was trying to do harm to these girls. Other people chased the guy down until police got there. Had to put their own life in peril. It's hard to be mad at those guys for anything, right? And we look at Jesus, what did he do? He stood between us and death, us and hell, us and the evil one. He stood between us, and not only did he stand between us, he took it on the chin, in the hands, in the feet, on the back, in the side, in the lungs, in the heart. Jesus took it. He suffered so that the love of God could overcome our sins and our anger. Maybe you've come angry today. And I can just tell you the reality is that God loves you, and you can try really, really hard to overcome your anger, and you don't have it in you. You don't have the oomph to make it happen. Only God's love His gracious spirit in your life can help you let go of the anger you've been hanging on to that's caused uh, problems between you and God. Maybe that anger has been directed at other people. You know, my, uh, one of my favorite people to listen to on the radio is Brant Hansen, who wrote a book called Unoffendable. And the premise of the book is just this. How can I be angry at someone else? How can I be so offended when I've done so many offensive things myself? The only way I should ever be offended by someone else is if I'm perfect and I haven't offended anybody else. That's really the long-term picture. And God gives us grace. Jesus suffered so that you could let go of your anger. And this morning, we just want to give you an opportunity that if you want to let go of the anger, I'll ask a few folks to come down here and just be willing to pray for you. If you want to pray with one of our elders, you want to grab somebody else to come and pray with you, and you want to just start letting go of that clenched fist anger. Begin to do that so you can find love in your life, in your heart, that spreads out to other people. Let go of that anger. God can do that great work in you. He's done it before and he'll do it again. Would you stand up and pray with me? God, we thank you so much that you have a love that can overcome our anger, and we know that anger can be volatile It can feel immense. It can feel insurmountable. 
it can overcome us, and yet your love beats it every time. So God, help us to say yes to your love, to let go of anger, and thank you for your scriptures and such a great resource. You don't always tell us why, but you help us overcome. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.